Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. I've chosen to wade into the COVID-19 debate because, well, I can't take it anymore. Anti-scientific conspiracy theories based on ideology in the absence of any evidence are spreading, not just among QAnon or the right-wing lunatics we like to vilify, but even among some segments of the left. There's no better expert to address this issue from a Marxist point of view than Rob Wallace. Rob is an evolutionary epidemiologist at the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps based in St. Paul. He's also co-author of Clear Cutting Disease Control, Capital-Led Deforestation, Public Health Austerity, and Vector-Borne Infection. And more recently, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. He's also consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Most importantly, Rob was an early Cassandra of sorts, warning about the risks of such pandemics long before they were a concern in the mainstream. So all that said, Rob, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you on because it's, you know, not often you can find an uh, epidemiologist who is coming from a Marxist perspective. So that alone is exciting. But more importantly, you know, you were among the few epidemiologists who warned us early on about the outbreak of deadly pandemics. So I guess my first question for you would be, you know, what did you see that others didn't? Well, you know, I, I will say that epidemiologists are always claiming that uh, the next deadly pathogen is coming. So <laughs> I am not alone in that. However, <laughs> uh, what what uh, I I may have gotten different is that, um, uh, you know, I was able to be uh, myself and my group are uh, able to uh, look upon the changing nature of um, how agriculture is uh, done uh, globally and the expanding um, land grabbing that's going on around the world that's uh, cutting into the forests in which many of the new pathogens are emerging out of. Um, so we found in the last 20 years uh, the increase in the rate of, uh, of spillovers uh, that are in essence in areas that are, are uh, worse hit by uh, uh, the emergence of kind of uh, capital-led um, uh, land grabbing for agribusiness, for mining, for for logging. Um, so I think that's what uh, differentiates our team's work with um, uh, some of the other work that's been done. Um, but uh, you know, we find ourselves at at, at uh, you know twenty years uh, into the twenty uh, first century, and uh, we have new pathogens emerging, uh, um, not just on an annual basis, but uh, almost a semi annual basis, where um, you have. Uh, for instance, a variety of avian influenzas, H5N1. We remember that was the first celebrity virus at the turn of the century emerge. But a whole number, all these license plates, you know, H7N9, H6N2, um, H5NX in Europe, uh, H1N1, the swine uh, flu that emerged outside Mexico City in 2009. Uh, but also other pathogens, uh, you know, the West African Ebola, the Congo Ebola, um, the Zika 
um, the, the SARS-1, the MERS in the Middle East, SARS-2, which is, of course, the virus that causes COVID. And so we have a ramping up of pathogens that are emerging, but uh, more importantly, are able to exit out of their, uh, their ecological homelands and make their way uh, to the local uh, provincial capitals and then get on a plane and uh, uh, find themselves halfway around the world in, in a matter of weeks in a way that they uh, weren't doing uh, so easily before. And so I guess, you know, you've, maybe the better way to say it than you're the only one who predicted it is, is you've challenged the traditional understanding of the origins and spread of infectious diseases. So can you explain maybe what is wrong in your, your view with the conventional wisdom on this issue? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, we have a, at one at the same time uh, an amazing array of brilliant virologists and epidemiologists and disease ecologists and uh, public health officials uh, who understand the nature of the problem in the sense of um, we have an acceleration on these new pathogens emerging. A lot of focus on uh, on the back on the uh, viruses themselves, the pathogens themselves, and clearly, you know, every time one of these new pathogens emerges, we we run to the internet, uh, we look up uh, its uh, molecular aspects, its clinical course, uh, uh, and that's all of us, not just the professionals. Now, uh, and, you know, very much everybody can do so, and you can get a little background on this, and uh, we get all riled up over this this next uh, uh, scare. And we should be worried about these things, and we should uh, focus on uh, uh, the, the specific aspects of the pathogen and, and its clinical course. Uh, the problem is, is that it, it, it's uh, an example of what we call focusing on the object. So it finds causality in the object, that the cause of the disease is the virus, and often the virus alone, or some sort of local um, uh, cultural practice like bushmeat uh, eating or cutting down local forest stand. Uh, and then so there's really focus on what's going on in a particular area at a particular um, GPS coordinate that might have led to the spillover of this pathogen. And the, the problem with that, and, and all that work is necessary, but it isn't sufficient. Uh, what you need also is an understanding that um, the, the, the emergence of, of these many multiple pathogens aren't just a matter of uh, what's happening in any local area. So, you know, Ebola isn't just about West Africa, right? So that moves us away from what are what's considered what are called absolute geographies, meaning the, the GPS coordinates that we're talking about. But we have to move into what's uh, thought of as relational geographies. And what that means is that uh, what happens on one side of the world affects the other side of the world. And so our team has moved in more the direction of, of looking at these kind of relational geographies and, and primarily around the, uh, the uh, impact of uh, what are called circuits of capital, uh, the means by which uh, capitalists uh, around the world are able to uh, exert uh, financial power and, you know, in essence, uh, engage in economic activity in such a way that uh, you know, flows of capital move from one side of the world to the other. So our team has moved in direction of thinking of uh, cities like New York, uh, London and Hong Kong uh, as being uh, disease hotspots in their own right by virtue of the fact that they are the sources of capital that are driving the deforestation and development that lead to the spillover events and the emergence of these pathogens. So, you know, that's why our team, and, and partly uh, there's a satirical aspect of it, but there's also partly a very serious aspect of it, 
when uh, the West African Ebola emerged, our team called it the neoliberal Ebola. Uh, my, my colleagues did not like that in, in the other, uh, <laughs> uh, other labs, of course, because, um, uh, but what it what importantly does is that it really draws attention uh, to to the, the nature of the outbreak. I mean, uh, in terms of the virology and uh, genetics of the virus that we were just talking about, absolutely necessary work. That the virus itself wasn't really that different at all. I mean, compared to other Ebola's that had emerged out of Central Africa or East Africa, same genetics, same epidemiological parameters, same clinical course. But how is it that a virus like that, that's not really that different, all of a sudden uh, goes from hitting a, a village or two uh, in East Africa in, in the hinterlands, you know, and a terrible thing with a 90% case fatality rate, maybe takes out a couple of gorilla or chimp, trim, chimp troops and, uh, but how does it all of a sudden go in West Africa uh, from uh, clearing a couple of villages to uh, spreading out over three uh, you know, state uh, countries, uh, infecting 35,000 people, killing 11,000 people and leaving uh, bodies in the streets of, of uh, major capitals? And if, if it's not in the optic of the virus, then you have to look in, into the field uh, around in which the virus is, is emerging. And every single virus uh, emerges this way. It's a kind of buildings roman in the sense of it comes from its low, you know, way back hinterland, concentrated in its local uh, 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 reservoir species, whether it's chimps or whether it's bats, and then all of a sudden, uh, by virtue of changes in the way uh, uh, societies organize, suddenly becomes it's still very much its its same molecular self, although it may evolve as well. But all of a sudden, it has opportunities it didn't have before. And suddenly yeah. it's, it's, it's able to spring uh, up, up. And that's what happened with Ebola. And, and all the other pathogens are, in, are engaged in this relationship between their agency, their capacity to evolve and spread, and the opportunities and barriers that we presented. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It seems like a really important aspect of studying this stuff is looking at the sociological reasons behind it and the structural reasons behind it. And your critique of the capitalist modes of production is quite radical. I guess I, I, would, I would think in the scientific community, though, it really shouldn't be. But in particular, your critique is radical when it comes to its effects on health and on how big farms and free trade agreements and global capital and like you mentioned, deforestation are actually causing pandemics. So can you elaborate uh, on your argument here? Sure. Uh, let's go back to our Ebola example, right? Um, I mean, why do we call it neoliberal Ebola, the West African one? Well, it's, um, you know, coming in 2013, by that point, uh, many of the countries of West Africa, um, although Liberia had been very much embedded in the capitalist world system uh, since back to 1925 in the, in the rubber trade, uh, to the point that uh, almost half of its land is dedicated toward um, a multinational uh, uh, production. Uh, the other countries in the area were largely uh, concentrated or, or isolated, uh, economically speaking. Um, you know, much of the uh, uh, forest, uh, the farming is uh, agroforestry within uh, by local indigenous groups um, in the in the forest. And um, but what happens when uh, countries are are you know tapped out in terms of their finances? They go to a kind of um, uh, intergovernmental agencies, World Bank, the uh, IMF, to ask for loans. And of course, that comes in with uh, the structural adjustment programs that forces mm -hmm. those countries to, in essence, open up their borders to allow multinational companies to come in, 
uh, reduction in uh, uh, funding for things like uh, public health and animal health. And so what we see here in some of the countries, um, including Guinea, where uh, it appears the, the, the first index case for the West African Ebola was identified, you had the beginnings of moving in a direction of, of a more multinational kind of, uh, of farming in the area where uh, uh, what was uh, agroforestry uh, for things like uh, palm oil was uh, being turned more in a direction of a kind of parastatal uh, uh, development and uh, parastatal companies, state companies developing uh, palm oil, then moving in a direction of allowing multinationals in. Uh, you know, and the ecology of forests is very complex. Um, I don't know if you've ever been one, but you step around, it's very, it's very confusing. Uh, yeah. It's so much going on and in a beautiful way. And uh, it, it's also, uh, you know, not that the forests are doing this for our benefit. They're, you know, it's an emergent uh, epiphenomenon in terms of the uh, that's how nature is operating in terms of uh, how they emerges. Of course, uh, humanity has much to do with that as well in terms of whether or not we allow that to happen or not. And uh, local indigenous groups often uh, rely on the kind of biodiversity to to uh, to live and prosper and socially reproduce themselves generation after generation. Uh, and that complexity acts as a buffer against the emergence of the, the deadliest pathogens. Uh, mm. Because uh, if the pathogens in a host it's really hard to line up a whole bunch of hosts one after the other if most of the other animals you uh, meet up in the forest are other species. So there's, in other words, there's the immunological fire breaks that are built into the ecological complexity of forests. Well, what happens when you, you wipe that out? You basically, uh, that, and that's what uh, uh, neoliberal development's all about, you know, letting uh, multinationals in, uh, you know, many a capitalist despises forests because they're just sitting there and they're not making money. <laughs> if you really want a, a good forest, it, you have to have a whole piles of lum uh, lumber there ready to be shipped out. That's a real working forest, right, in their, in their eyes. Um, so you've got, um, once you start uh, clear-cutting forests, then that basically reduces the complexity of forests. Most of the host uh, reservoir species that are, are hosting these pathogens, some of them will die out. But not all of them. Some uh, species are actually quite uh, adept at uh, responding to these uh, the, the changes. Uh, so many of the frugivore, uh, fruit-eating bats, and the insectivore bats, uh, the bats that eat insect in the area, are behaviorally plastic. They change their mind. They're not going to go, oh, we're just going to roll over and die now. No, they, they change their behavior. So yeah. many of them fly to now these new plantations. The oil palm plantations are, are wonderful places to go to. So for a bat, there's no competitors, there's no uh, predators. There's a lot of space between your uh, foraging site and your roosting sites. Uh, and then also increasing the interface between these bats and the, the humans that are tending these plantations and the new livestock that are, are into the forest. Uh, the workers themselves, they've been, uh, you know, it's kind of very early Marx, England of, the, you know, the land grabs, the uh, the proterianization of, uh, of locals. Uh, so what's happening in West Africa happened uh, in, in England and in countries elsewhere hundreds of years ago. But it's the same old story of the kind of uh, land grabbing and the uh, encircling lands, the um, uh, proterianization of uh, people there. Uh, who were able to previously uh, at least do uh, subsistence farming, but also kind of local market uh, development. But now they are forced to either work for uh, multinationals or parastatal companies uh, and or uh, travel to local cities uh, for the, to get into the labor market and, and take on uh, 
the wage labor in order to pay for things in a way that they weren't able, they didn't have to do before. Uh, come the, uh, the, the the ag season, however, many of them will circle back to help out with family plots that are still available. So in other words, we have this kind of cycle migration between the, the forest edge and the major cities. So anything that emerges out of these uh, plantation plops over into the local workers who are helping ship uh, some of the produce uh, into uh, the, the major cities or themselves are migrating between the, the city and and the, the hinterland as a way of uh, being able to socially uh, survive. Uh, so there, you've got your straight shot between and your, your production circuit there between the, the forest and the city. And so anything that emerges quickly makes its way through the uh, peri-urban landscape uh, and the local capital and then onto the, the, the tightened and widespread global travel and trade networks. So something that emerges in uh, the sub-Saharan Africa or in center, uh, central China, all of a sudden uh, is, is, you know, to be somewhat uh, in a dark humor, end up uh, having a martinis on a, on a Miami beach in a couple of weeks. Right? So, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a terrible, hideous Too true, thing. actually. Yeah. yeah so, um, Pretty accurate. <laughs> so that, that, that's the general model our team has uh, converged on. And just one final point about it is that it really helps explain all the different types of, of pathogens that we were just, uh, just describing. So something like Ebola emerges uh, out of the deep forest, something like the avian and swine influenzas are emerging off, uh, many of them emerging off industrial uh, 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 livestock and uh, poultry farms outside major cities. Uh, uh, so they're closer to the city. And then some of these pathogens are, are emerging along the circuit of production. Zika comes to mind, largely a uh, urban phenomenon, but also, it has a relationship with other uh, pathogens like dengue that uh, increase its impact uh, in such a way that uh, the, the various pathogens are speaking to each other uh, in a way that uh, broadcasts uh, each other in, in, in a terrible way. So uh, all these things are happening along that peri-urban circuit. And so there you have a kind of uh, geographical and so, uh, sociological explanation for uh, the totality of all these different types of pathogens and how they emerge uh, and as the relationship to the kind of growing uh, capitalization of, of agriculture and, and logging and mining. So all that said, you know, how has capitalism reacted to the pandemic? You know, was it a threat? Because it did, unlike these other uh, viruses, this one in particular, COVID, like really shut down the world in a unprecedented way, at least I think in our lifetimes. Um, so was it a threat to capitalism? Was it an opportunity? Or, and I'm, I, you know, I think I'm being too optimistic here, but was it an impetus for change? The answer is yes. Okay. So all those things. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, well, here's, here's what's been going on. Uh, you know, it really takes us back. Let's go 500 years with the, uh, uh, emergence of European-led uh, capitalism and the colonial uh, enterprise uh, going around the world. Mm -hmm. The objective was to, in essence, uh, you know, grab resources in the global south, uh, enslave people there for their labor. So you're grabbing land and labor, and uh, you're, in essence, all the damage that comes out of that is to be concentrated along the equator. So the global south is supposed to, to bear the damage of this, and it had for five years to the tune of millions of deaths a year. Right. Um, so, and the global north uh, 
you know, took all those resources. So you have 20% of the world's population still today using 80% of the resources. Um, that still goes on. But uh, the damage has gotten to the point where it's moved away from being uh, locally concentrated to being broadcast everywhere. Um, some of the uh, philosophers, uh, Timothy Morton among them, have talked about hyper objects, meaning you have events and, and dangers that are everywhere all at once. Climate change is an obvious example of that, and uh, the pandemics are another. Uh, so we've arrived at a moment where the damage of the 500 years that can no longer be merely concentrated along the, uh, uh, the equator and uh, in, in the global south. It's now everywhere all at once. And all of a sudden, this seems to be a bit of a shock. The, 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 this is supposed to be uh, the damage and the death is supposed to be only uh, uh, carried on by primarily black and brown people uh, elsewhere. And to be suddenly uh, be footed with the bill uh, uh, is uh, something of a shock for um, much of the uh, political class in the global north that is, uh, you know, trying to run the world in a way that benefits their uh, bourgeois benefactors. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's a shock of it. But uh, the, the other yes is that, uh, yeah, uh, the capitalism uh, exhibits an extraordinary capacity to adjust to, uh, including to the the dangers and damages of its own making. Um, and it, it is trying to, in essence, trying to, again, uh, trying to um, uh, react in a way that basically uh, puts the damage back on the global south. And I, I know we're, we're gonna talk a little bit more about vaccines, but that's exactly what's going on now, right? So, um, and we'll get into the details in short course, but you know, uh, you got 5.5 billion uh, vaccine doses that have been administered, 80%, uh, administered in uh, countries, rich countries, and, and middle and, and middle income classes uh, countries, uh, so that that model continues, and that the 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 expectation both at the global level and within countries is that um, much of the uh, uh, political class and uh, and their uh, you know uh, more affluent clientele are going to skirt through this global uh, hyper object, uh, this global danger, by imposing the damage on those within country and at uh, and, and at the global level along the equator as a way of skirting through this. So they, they are prepared to do this. They, uh, you know, this is not, um, uh, these people are, are, in my view, and I don't mean in a medical term, but they are sociopaths. They are, it doesn't matter how well they dress or, or how well they look or how well they speak or or any of these things. It doesn't matter who showed up at the Met Gala in New York uh, the other day. It's not about uh, any of those things. It's um, in, in the end, uh, it's not about manners. It's not about persona. It's not about Trump or how uh, Biden's different from him. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know these uh, structural kind of impositions that are uh, baked into the cake of of what where we are as a, a world system. And a lot of these processes are, have a momentum that stretch back several hundred years that uh, are continuing, although all those things are important, you know, the personas and all those things are important. But I'm just saying that there's these other things going on as well that uh, uh, I would say, uh, other than myself and a few other epidemiologists, uh, is almost never actually brought into any discussion of the, uh, wow. uh, the repeated emergence of these pathogens. That's actually frightening because, of course, you would need to actually talk about these things in order to really prevent them. And we can get a, you know into that in a bit. But I and also just to your vaccine point, I mean, yeah, it is astonishing that now they're talking about getting boosters in 
the global north, whereas, you know, I'm in Lebanon right now and I know people who still haven't even gotten a vaccine appointment, right? Like it's, I think, yeah. and I think it's one of the luckier countries actually in terms of developing countries that have had access to vaccines, but we'll get it. We, we can get back into mm -hmm. that in a bit, but I just wanted to play devil's advocate for a moment, right? Cause this is what, what a capitalist might say. <laughs> they might say, how can you blame capitalism for this pandemic? If many, you know, famous pandemics in the past preceded capitalism and then the capitalist age. Right, right, right. And, and boy, do I love to hear more capitalist talking points. As if I don't, <laughs> as if I don't hear them out. every day, <laughs> every day, all the time on uh, just about God, every channel. That is so terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is an old argument. I have a, a, a blog post, I think, from 2009 that addresses thing. It has to do with a, a difference in historicism and that, you know, much as we have uh, changes in our history, we don't play around with just because we all go to war for oil in this era doesn't mean that the, that the Romans couldn't possibly have gone to war because there wasn't they weren't using oil. Right. Things, <laughs> things change. History changes and the pathogens uh, change in in response to these things. And the, the it isn't that the pandemics didn't happen before, it's just that uh, uh, capitalism is presently in a position to engage in a kind of uh, a kind of alienation of land and labor that has increased the, the traffic by which these pathogens are emerging. Uh, and, you know, it was a hundred years since the last really terrible uh, outbreak, I mean, a uh, pandemic, you know, the uh, 1918 influenza, but it's uh, nobody, it doesn't matter where position they are, whether they're like me or, or are they're very much, uh, you know, part of an establishment science. Uh, nobody ever is going to pretend that it's going to be another hundred years of this thing happen. It's going to ha happen yeah. again. I mean, we, you know, if you look back at SARS, you know, we have SARS-1, uh, 2002, we have MERS, I think 2012, and then we have SARS-2 in, in, in 2019. And those are the three major deadly ones. We also had like four or five others coronaviruses that emerged and spilled over into humans that weren't that deadly, but were identified. So we are in like only 18 years, you know, subjected to a barrage of three major SARS that almost, uh, two of them almost went pandemic, killing thousands of people. And one of them obviously did. And so we have increased the rate and the diversity of pathogens that are emerging uh, and are being able to get up onto our, our global travel networks uh, in such a way that Yes, capitalism does have very much to do with this. It's not disconnected from human development, but it is a new stage in uh, our, our the means by which humanity is socially reproducing itself. And in fact, as you know, this is part of the sociopathy of the people involved uh, because they have, in essence, you know, they have exited the planet. I mean, this is the what's called the metabolic rift, the rift between how ecologies and economies are are connected. Uh, that uh, ecologies and economies have been disconnected from each other in such a way that uh, a capitalist economy is driven by a, 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 you know, profit motive and margins in, in a way that uh, the damage that accrues upon ecologies and local peoples is to be left behind and divorced from uh, the ways and means by which um, we live our lives. But, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where uh, you know, astronauts who, who go repeatedly into space look upon the earth and see major changes in terms of uh, what forest is still available. And so it, it is truly profound. And it gets to uh, H. Bruce Franklin's point that uh, people like Zizek and uh, Jameson stole. And it's a good line to steal, but it's gotten to the point that it's uh, it's harder to imagine imagine the end of capitalism than the the imagine the end of the world, 
And so you have, uh, uh, you know, yeah. it is frightening. And and so when we see people, you know, I, I look upon, you know, Elon Musk and he puts a, <laughs> a, a car up into space. It's, you know, there's an aspect of, you know, uh, you know, the, the what billions of dollars does to an ego. Right. And and uh, and uh, an Imaginarium and all that. But, the, you know, there is something quite representative of it, of that. Yes. The capitalists. And and you and I are not capitalists. None of us, very few of us, actually, are capitalists. Absolutely not on uh, this channel. <laughs> right. So uh, so you know, projecting, uh, putting a car into space is representative that our capitalists who run things have left the planet. They they are gone. They have left, and as uh, as part of as a uh, as a kind of ethos and and um, uh, you know uh, moral prerogative, they have left us in uh, in such a way that uh, you know in some ways I, I again you know I, you can see I have a dark humor this is the way I deal with things um, but there's an aspect of the Elon Musk and such are they are going to take us to Mars and they're going to take all of us and the way they're going to do it yeah. well they, no they're, they're going to basically turn earth into a uh, dust bowl and mm. so that that is the direction that they're taking us they cannot be allowed to continue to do this uh, it doesn't matter again um, and the problem is, of course, is that money talks uh, presently in a way that it's buying up uh, everyone, including scientists, to be able to, in essence, prop up a system that is uh, uh, increasingly on its last legs, not only as a system of production, but it actually is uh, has our species in, in sight of extinction. That's, yeah, that's, um, I imagine your job is as depressing as probably a climate uh, a climatologist job is these days. Um, that is really, really frightening and depressing and depressing. And so I'm glad that we can kind of go into these things. I, I wanted to ask you, and I think this, this is very much attached to what you're talking about. You know, when the swine flu broke out in 2009, you called it the NAFTA flu and you linked it to the North American free trade agreement. Can you explain to our listeners and viewers what you meant by that? And does this apply to all free trade agreements in general, at least? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I owe you a third yes. And, and just to get us away from the Dr. <gasps> oh. Doom thing, right? And I, I, why don't we, why don't we pre, we'll press pause on that third yes and okay. get back to it? Because it's a good way to end up on a, on a oh, that's much true. That's happier a good note that's a good point. to say yeah. that, yes, there are ways <laughs> of getting out of this and, and there are people working on it and... Um, um, but to, to answer this question, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we had swine flu, uh, H1N1 emerge uh, in uh, hog farms outside Mexico City, you know, very much in the model that we discussed about mm -hmm. how, you know, the large farms uh, that are out supplying city with uh, meat um, are also sources of, of, of pathogens. This happened uh, in uh, 2009. And, um, you know, a lot of effort uh, on the part of the Obama administration to make sure that we didn't call it swine flu as a way of protecting the, the swine industry. Um, but uh, so the focus on the kind of license plate H1N1 aspect of it, although that confused things because there's a seasonal influenza of H1N1 as well. Um, but I, our group went in the other direction. And uh, again, uh, th there is an aspect, uh, well, you know, very much... Uh, pointing to the kind of um, importance of the kind of sociological field in which uh, pathogens are emerging out of, and we call it the NAFTA flu, as you noted, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement uh, that was put in place in uh, 1994, uh, linking the economies of uh, Canada, uh, the US and Mexico. Well, what, what, what happened? How does this relate to the emergence of the swine influenza? 
all you have, uh, you know, most countries have uh, trade barriers to protect their domestic industries. And so uh, the swine industry in Mexico was largely a smallholder. And uh, when the barrier came down, um, in, in essence, uh, the U.S. Uh, went to war with uh, that uh, domestic uh, hog industry, basically engaged in call what's called meat dumping, which is, um, it's not just about meat, you can do it with all sorts of produce, but you, uh, you basically sell meat that at prices that lead to losses, but by undercutting your, the domestic market, you drive the domestic businesses out of business. And so this is what, you know, uh, the variety of, um, of uh, American multinationals did, uh, you know, Smithfield comes to mind, but they, they uh, slammed them, uh, the, the Mexican market, uh, meat dumped, and the Mexican domestic producers are in a bind. They could do one or two things. Either they could just say, I'm done, sell off the farms to the multinationals that are now moving in, including Smithfield, uh, or they can consolidate with their neighbors, as has happened in the U.S. over the last uh, 40, 50 years, and make these large farmer farms and at least these mid-range agribusiness that can compete with the multinationals and their subsidiaries that are moving in. And this is what happened. So by you know uh, coming in on the turn of the century, uh, how hog was raised in Mexico is very different. It's very much more in the American model. So you have thousands of hog, uh, all genetically the same, very much limited number of breeds. Um, all of them raised um, in short order, uh, 22 weeks of uh, growth uh, before they're slaughtered. Um, you know, for uh, raised for yes, domestic uh, consumption, but also for export. And so, if you look at some of the uh, Google Maps, if you want, <laughs> you can look around Mexico City uh, further out. Uh, you'll see all these, you know, very large. Um, uh, you know, uh, farms that are more dedicated to that kind of production. So this had a profound effect on uh, on on the pathogen itself. And if you look at H1N1, the influenza genome is segmented. It's like different pieces. You know, we have chromosomes, like this like kind of version of that. And when you have two different types of influenza combined in the same body, they kind of sometimes will trade those uh, uh, genomic pieces like card players on a Saturday night. So you have all this kind of <laughs> in increase in the, the variety of the uh, pathogens uh, that develop out of that. And so this is what's been going on. As uh, exports have uh, exploded uh, post-World War II, and especially in the, from the 90s on, uh, when the livestock revolution, that's the kind of uh, the things I was just talking about, the uh, uh, you know re reducing the number of, of uh, producers, increasing the uh, you know, the kind of vertical integration that uh, many of the companies are doing, owning all parts of the supply line, uh, the kind of multinationalism involved. Well, that was generally started post-World War II, largely in chickens. That uh, mark, uh, model moved into uh, hogs by the early 90s. So you have the convergence of NAFTA and this model of production in a way that arrived in Mexico. And so you have um, the influenza is responding to that. So, you know, now that hog is being shipped from one side of the world to the other. Uh, yes, in, including by plane, uh, hog uh, do fly, and uh, in a way that um, they take their pathogens as well. So what influences that were previously isolated by distance from one side of the world to the other are now interconnecting in a way, are able to trade their uh, genomic segments in a way that they weren't able to previously in such a way that H1N1, you look at its genome and you see that the segments, some segments 
are from hog that are been circulating in Canada and the US, and some were from hog that were from Eurasia. And so you go, how do, you get, how do they get together like that? Because it's not like the avian influenza where they, they try to blame the migratory wild, waterfowl, you know, the ones that migrate from one uh, part of the world to the other. So they couldn't do that for hog because you don't have hog flying around <laughs> continent to continent except by our chartered plane, right? So right. we do that. And, and who's doing that? Because it's not the smallholders, not the small farmers who are shipping their hog by plane. You know, <laughs> like a single ticket would wipe out their entire profit margin. So right. it's obviously the in, in, in uh, the large multinationals that are doing this. So that led to now. It's not when we came up with NAFTA uh, flu. You know, this was at a time of uh, it was a kind of a circumstantial uh, conclusion about how this came about. But actually, some of the there was some evolutionary genomics work done looking at the genetics of the virus and actually tracking uh, the, the spread of it uh, and how it emerged in, uh, um, uh, in, in, in uh, outside Mexico City. Uh, you know, the Martha Nelson's team of phylogeographers uh, first looked at uh, all the hog segments, all the ge genetic segments, all the sequences for all the hog uh, influenzas, and they found that you know, China was not a source of uh, influenza on the world stage, in part because at the time all their hog was consumed domestically. Mm. It, it was apparently uh, the U.S. and Canada was were the major sources of hog. Of no influenza. way. You Sigmas. can't really mean that. Yeah, right. So they, <laughs> they were able to discover, looking at the genetics only, that can U.S. and Canada was the source of multiple segments for all these uh, in, in swine influenzas now circulating. Uh, and they also were able to look at uh, that as far as it relates to H1N1. Uh, just to wrap up on, on this question, the, uh, they were able to show that um, uh, it was U.S. and Canada that were supplying wow. uh, the H1N1 segments that ended up in those uh, Mexican states that had the highest uh, production of industrial hog. You know, I do actually want to get to talking to you a bit about the attempt to kind of displace blame for the entire pandemic on China. But first, I want to get into the issue of vaccines, because, right. you know, we've been living with coronavirus since early 2020, and we assumed that once vaccines came out, it would be over. And I think there was kind of a time period, at least for me, and I think a lot of other people, maybe three or four months ago, when we were like, oh my God, I think this is it, it's over. Like it was, you know, everything felt like, you know, we can, we don't really have to wear masks anymore. But now it appears like we have to live with this virus for the foreseeable future with these new variants and breakthrough cases. And as well as this kind of, you know, this, this growing, I think, at least in the American context, this anti-vaccine movement. So, you know, I guess my first question for you would be, are vaccines actually the solution for dealing with this virus? Um, and then we can kind of get into some of the, the other issues around it. I, I don't know how many curse words I want to use at this point. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like so obscene what's been going on and all the terrible thinking as you start off at the top of from left to right. I mean, it's, it's a total um, uh, S show at this point. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and to wade through it, I... I taken not to uh, post so much on social media, taking down each of these points because every day is, uh, is another, uh, you know, truckload of, of uh, BS about all this. Right. So I will, I'll try to make this brief and just say <laughs> that, yeah, vaccines work in the sense of uh, they offered what's called disease immunity, uh, meaning 
if you get vaccinated uh, using these, uh, more than likely uh, you will not be killed by, by COVID. That's a kind of good thing, and you should do that. Uh, here in the U.S. in June, uh, 99% of the people who die from COVID were unvaccinated. So right. do us all a favor. Do your family a favor. Do yourself a favor. Get vaccinated so you don't die from COVID, right? This is what we do. Okay. Now, why, why, is, that, why is it not happening? I mean, if we, have the, if we have the silver bullet, why cannot we <laughs> defeat everything, right? Well, the, re- the reason is because uh, all the terrible things that went in beforehand, and it's not just a Trump thing, but a, he, he totally uh, F things up and in a really terrible way, right? I mean, he put in, he, by virtue of the failure to do anything about uh, COVID-19, uh, he, he put basically half a million Americans in the ground. Right. Uh, and, and it's remarkable that then subsequently over 70 million Americans voted for him. Uh, in the subsequent election. So this really speaks to the state of things here in the U.S. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, the problem is, is that uh, there were all sorts of non-pharmaceutical things we could have done that would have stopped the virus. Uh, but, and countries around the world have done that in a very, very different countries, you know, uh, China, Vietnam, New Zealand, Iceland, in the early days of the outbreak, Uruguay, in the later days now, Panama, uh, they are engaged in the kind of uh, a variety of, of interventions uh, at a time that block and stop their outbreaks cold uh, without a vaccine. So uh, you have things, yes, you have stay-at-home orders, but they also pay people to stay home. So you don't have black and brown people getting on the train in New York City to go to work because they got to pay their bills and therefore keeping the infections going. Uh, so they, you just stay home. We wait it out for a couple months. It's going to suck like hell. I don't. It's not fun, um, but you also you also check up on people. So you have these community health workers, brigades of them going from uh, house to house, you know, seeing how people are, what are their needs. Um, and this is stuff that goes back to the uh, the you know the, the government of of London in, in the plague of the you know 1550s had it had it better down than the U.S. did during COVID nineteen. But you have other things, you, you know, there's what's called Tetris, uh, testing, uh, tracing, and isolation. And countries uh, engage that hardcore in a way that they were able to um, uh, isolate people who were happened to be tested infected um, and in a way that uh, allowed everybody else to continue about their day, everybody wear masks, a whole thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's part and parcel of what's called the Swiss cheese model of, of intervention, where you do one intervention, it's got some holes in it. So it's not quite enough. Oh, let's put another layer of cheese on it. That's a, a different intervention. It has holes too, but it's the holes are in a different spot. And if you do right. enough of these inventions, then all the holes are covered. But that requires engaging in an understanding of what public health is about. And here in the U.S. and in, in, in less so Great Britain, but other than the neoliberal countries have largely abandoned public health as an idea for the last 40 years. So it's not about when Trump is elected, all went to hell. It was going to hell 40 years ago when, in essence, neoliberalism decided to divest out of public health, turn uh, uh, the um, uh, medical in, in medical interventions into your personal relationship between you and your doctor. And to make sure that you can... Uh, bill, uh, you know, every minute is billable, of course, in the in the in the room with your doctor, yeah. so you can make money off this hardcore. Uh, but public health, you can't do that. You know what? A community health worker is going to knock on your door and say, "How are you doing today? 
just want to make sure you're okay. And by the way, I'm going to have to slip this bill underneath your door for the 30 seconds I talk to you. No, that's not what public health is. It's part of the larger infrastructure by which society is able to survive and, and socially reproduce itself. So we, and, okay. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, and maybe having that lack of, uh, public health investment and infrastructure there is possibly related to why some people are so hesitant to buy into it. That's exactly right. Because the hesitancy, the, the, um, the hesitancy, the conspiracy theories, these are all markers of the state of things. They are not, that's not rebellion. They're symptoms. They're symptoms yeah. of a society that has abandoned it. It uh, that has abandoned itself, and you know, it's it's they are symptoms of a failure of vaccine access. Uh, you're obligated to uh, explain to people what the vaccine is, what it does, what risk it may entail, what it can and cannot do. I talked about that it provides disease immunity, it doesn't necessarily provide what's called sterilizing immunity, meaning once you're vaccinated, you get infected, you won't get hurt, but you could pass it on to somebody else who can't get vaccinated, say uh, you're a kid under 12, or someone, you know, uh, an elderly person who is vaccinated, but still might actually uh, uh, suffer considerably from infection. So, you know, that's the thing. It, it wasn't a silver bullet. It never was. It was always known from the early 2020. And this is where um, the Bidens and the, and the, uh, the liberal, uh, you know, uh, March for Science people get it all wrong, because uh, it was always known that this was only going to be uh, one layer of the Swiss cheese thing that had holes in it. It was mm -hmm. never to be something that was going to uh, be a cure-all. And yet, when Biden came into office, uh, what did they do? Come May, CDC decides, hey, take your mask off if you've been... Uh, <laughs> that was uh, so dumb. Yeah, I well, even at the time thought that was dumb. <laughs> well, they, it, yes, it was dumb. It was, it was, in fact, as malicious as anything that Trump did. And it put, it's put it several thousands of people on the ground and will continue to do so. And CDC and Fauci and Biden uh, uh, must take a responsibility for that. They are as, uh, you know, are they as terrible as Trump? Are we going to argue over, you know, uh, which leader is less of a killer than the other? I mean, are we down to that? Is that? No. So um, it was very well known at the time. And a lot of, uh, you know, here's the positive aspect of it in terms of a lot of people denounced that. They objected to it. So you have nurses to deans of science who, as a species, are typically cowardly. But they were so uh, horrified by this that they wrote, uh, my hat's off to them, op-eds opposing this. This was very well known that this was, wasn't going to work, particularly yeah. because, I mean, think about it. At the time, the Delta variant was emerging out of China. So in essence, we just returned exactly to where we were before. So in uh, early 2020, uh, COVID's coming out of China. We do nothing. We just sit there and do nothing. Uh, Delta is merging out of India. Uh, India. Uh, one year later, what did we decide to do? We just sit nothing. there and do nothing. <laughs> yeah, so we're back at yeah. and and what it is is it's it's basically a kind of uh, structural um, pathology in which it doesn't necessarily it does matter who you have in office, but all those people are expressions of a particular historical moment in which they are acting on the instincts that in essence oppose public health. Uh, as an, an unfortunate investment in human beings, instead of using that money to get a billionaire uh, 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 richer. Okay, so very briefly, and maybe what I say isn't going to be that brief, but I just wanted to very quickly, because I think, I think what you're saying ties into 
um, a lot of the distrust, right? Like the government didn't do anything and every people got sick and died, like yeah. masses of people. Yeah. And this is on top of, you know, what I think is already America's already a very individualist country where people tend to be di very distrustful of the government. It's just kind of like, you're, you're almost inculcated with that mindset. It's a very libertarian mindset in America. But that kind of ties into what I see as this sort of like vaccine hesitancy, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories that I see proliferating across the political spectrum at the moment where these people who are totally scientifically like illiterate until yesterday because they read one article or like a summary of one study, um, you know, or something a fake expert said, um, you know, now they all think they're like Dr. Fauci or something. So can you just very quickly address some of the claims that we're hearing, which is, yes, of course, vaccines aren't the only thing that are going to fix this. We can't just depend on vaccines, especially as you say, where they're not necessarily they might limit transmission, but they're not stop completely preventing it um, or preventing you from getting it. But I guess, you know, some of these claims that vaccines don't prevent transmission at all. So there's no point in mandating them. And then all kinds of claims made about fertility and how we don't know the long term impacts. And you hear people calling the mRNA vaccine experimental when it's not experimental. And so can you just kind of debunk some of this very basic bullshit that they're here we're hearing? And you don't have to go too in depth. I just want people to hear from an epidemiologist, you know, yeah. saying that this isn't true and why. <laughs> right, right. So so I, I got somewhat ahead of myself by talking about how the focus on vaccines yeah. alone is problematic. But yeah, but I, as I started off with, yes, get vaccinated, it will protect you. Uh, there, there is discussion, the, the, the bulk of the data in uh, indicates that it does provide some immunity from infecting other people and being infected. However, uh, that's not necessarily the case in all cases. So this is the difficulty because we get into the complexity of it when uh, the political, you know, temperature is so high now that we just want to throw, uh, you know, gobs of, of mud right now. So, um, but it's, it, you know, the side effects are, are, are negligent for the most part. Most people, you're not going to die from this. It's going to protect you. It's, um, it's not going to, you know, um, my hat's off to Nicki Minaj's music. However, it's not going to cause your... Uh, your balls to swell and 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 infertility, anything like that. Please don't get involved in that. But it, what it does, it speaks to an unfortunate, uh, you know, the collapse of trust. And and trust is an epidemiological variable. And uh, both administrations have violated that uh, by uh, virtue of refusing to engage in the public health practices that have been long shown, not just historically, also within this country, including uh, the, the distribution of uh, polio vaccine in the 50s and 60s, but also in the world now. You know, there are countries doing excellent jobs at, at getting people vaccinated around the world. And um, uh, and yet there is, uh, you know, the strain that has been, um, uh, you know, woven into both uh, left and right here and and some centrists in, in the sense of the kind of more natural uh, medicine kind of folk. And um, and uh, I, I uh, would just say, you know, that that none of that is the case. Um, and that uh, vaccines are are going to be effective in the sense of uh, protecting people from getting ill, and it does matter, uh, you know, whether or not you're vaccinated and, and well, because um, if you're you're ill, you know, uh, you know, you might be in a position to to infect uh, other people with a, a greater inoculant of uh, 
of the, the pathogen that subsequently hurts uh, someone worse than if you just subsequently passed on uh, a, a strain uh, or, or inoculant that, that uh, is somewhat uh, attenuated by your vaccination. So, you know, there does seem, like I was mentioning earlier, there seems to be this obsession in the U.S. with individual liberty, which is like this national religion in America, um, along with the profit motive, which is a lot of why we have the problem we have right now. At what point do you think public health and the good of people as a whole supersedes that sort of American notion of freedom and individual rights? And I guess that's me going into the question of, do you think vaccines should be not only universal, but mandatory? Where, they, they where are, do you stand on that? They are yeah, universal, they, they, and they are mandatory. I mean, every right. single one of the people who is complaining about the COVID vaccine was mandated to have all these vaccines when they went to school. And mm -hmm. at you know, you don't, we can't pretend that they were just around. I mean, the MMR one came into the fifties and sixties. I mean, it was a you know, it's a very fairly recent thing, and it's um, uh, you know, for moms and measles and rubella. So you know, all these things. And these people are alive today by virtue of these vaccines to complain about the vaccine they don't want. <laughs> they, uh, I, and I and look, I can go to I I you know I have posted on this and I've gone to town on, on these uh, on these on, on on this vantage point. I don't want to make it a an aspect of of you know uh, bashing anybody on that account because the failure of trust is a failure of our of governance and it's a failure of uh, along all sorts of jurisdictions. And I think, uh, you know, scoring hits on, on uh, people who don't, aren't vaccinated, some of whom have not been able to get to uh, a vaccine place, and in part because the non-pharmaceutical, uh, you know, networks and in, uh, interventions that we didn't put in place were also needed to put in the vaccine. So if yeah. you're an a unable, you know, you know, I had uh, comp compensatory fantasies at the early, at the early part of the uh, outbreak that what Trump would do was that, he was going to mail out uh, a box of masks to every ho home in America, and we would hire celebrities to come up with a song for each month that would be the song for the month for us to celebrate the the shipping of the of the mask. And you know, Kanye could do something and <laughs> about masks, and and you know, and every it would be a funny thing that we would all enjoy and. Some of these songs will be awful and we'll enjoy them. Some of them will be amazing. But the whole point <laughs> is a whole uh, culture of public health that extends yeah. beyond merely tat tattling on people or tisting them or, or berating them or bashing them or anything. I'm not the only one in the, on, 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 this, uh, on this point. Uh, there's um, a uh, disease ecologist by the name of Marius Gilbert in, in Belgium. Uh, he's a colleague, uh, but he became something of a celebrity in Belgium by virtue of his TV appearances. Uh, he was very good at talking to people, but uh, recently came out with a book. He and he also basically argued that we should not be in the business of bashing uh, people who do not uh, vaccinate at this point. It has to be a conversation, and this is the kind of conversation that has to be ha should have been happening over the course of six months over over a year, even if it's in a country that uh, is individualistic. At the same time, you know we're all still doing things, and we don't even think about it. You know, you put on your seatbelt. Is it is it because you have to or you're used to doing it? Uh, you put on your headlights. It's not just about seeing you in the dark of the of the road, but also to help other people not get killed and run into you. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So despite people's individualistic uh, ethos and uh, their day to day practice, they do care about people. And that's the hard thing, because, 
you know, am I going to talk? Am I interested in talking to a fascist? No, I have no interest in having that conversation. However, there's an old uh, leftist line that if you don't talk to the worker, the fascist will. So yeah. if, you're not in the, if you're not in the business of talking to people who don't necessarily agree, uh, including people who on this point are, say, opposed to vaccines or something, you have to start the conversation and, and build the trust. But that should have been something that a, a sane government uh, right. interested in the well-being of its own people, which weirdly countries around the world seem to have very different countries. Like you can object to what's going on in China. You can object to what's going on in New Zealand. But some weird thing, they kind of think that the well-being of their people is important enough to actually put the kibosh on this outbreak so they people can go back. You know, I see pictures a year ago, pictures of uh, Kiwis, uh, New, uh, New Zealanders, going to rugby games without masks because yeah. they didn't have to. Not yeah, because they were right. They, not not <laughs> because they were like you know fuck you the government. They were like I don't have to. Or what about in Wuhan? You know they had raves in Wuhan yep. where people were hanging out doing their thing. I want us to be able to do a, to do that, and I suppose we have. But without without dealing with the virus that so far has killed over half a million Americans and likely to kill. Uh, several hundred thousand more because we yeah. can't get our act together as a country and decide that public health is something that we need to do to allow us to go back to the concerts and all the other things we wanted to do before. However, all the problems we were have, having before the outbreak. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point, especially about like about the, it being the responsibility of the state, because, you know, I think that even with the, something like as simple as the polio vaccine in like really rural areas of like Afghanistan and Pakistan, you can't just go in and give people the vaccine. You have to like, there's like an, an international NGOs that work on rolling out like an entire educational uh, community project to like help people understand what this is, why you need it and convince them to get it. And that hasn't really happened in the US. I mean, one thing I will say I was impressed with because I did get vaccinated in the US earlier this year was it's like the most socialist thing I've ever experienced in the US. It was free. And I just went there and I got a vaccine. It was super easy. Everyone was like really happy to give me the vaccine. Yeah. Like there was people, you know, you probably experienced the same thing. There was like people mm -hmm. leading you in the line yeah. to like, okay, yeah. good. They were so happy. Like it was a really like pleasant experience yeah. and probably one of the few instances I can think of where I really felt like taken care of by my government. So it has been really odd to see this bizarre backlash, not from the people I expect to see it from, but maybe certain segments of the left where I'm like, this is like, we should be embracing this. This is a good thing. But of course, you know, naturally one of the, I think one of the reasons that at least on the left that, you know, people are getting angry about the vaccine for better or for what's for worse, but is, you know, naturally as leftists, we're supposed to be skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry and opposed to its monopoly power. Yeah. So I guess my question for you would be, how do we as leftists deal with the fact that they are, the pharmaceutical industry is the one that's, that has, A, the infrastructure to really rapidly produce these vaccines, um, even if they're motivated by profit and not public good, but at the same time, they are making a massive profit. And I, I mean, how do we deal with that contradiction, I guess, is my question. Look, everywhere I look every day, I, I wince and, you know, shudder and to see all the various perspectives that are totally off on the, and I, I, I can't, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I, I do say like, the, the, these things are, are, are ridiculous because, you know, the left has a proud history of doing two things at once. We can do more than one thing. Like for one, we have uh, one at the same time uh, demanded 
that any new medical innovation be uh, uh, be allowed and provided to everyone, regardless of cost, to everybody as a form of uh, of justice and a form of uh, public health protection. The health of my brother and sister is connected to my health. So it's fundamentally necessary for that to happen. And at the same time, we can still very much object to the kind of uh, present, the kind of commoditization of, of uh, medical stuff in a way that, uh, you know, most people can't uh, access these things by virtue of not being able to afford them. Um, so we can uh, object to uh, the various uh, shenanigans of the pharmaceutical company have have been up to. This gets into what's happening at the global level. Um, the, the WHO in the early days of 2020 uh, basically proposed and started building a platform for open medicine that allowed um, uh, that anybody uh, anywhere could share data in a way that would allow us to develop vaccines and, and in essence, move toward basically open licensing so that vaccines could be produced out of all countries that have the uh, facilities for doing so. What happens? Well, Gates comes in, Bill Gates and his buddies over in the pharmaceutical industry came in, put the kibosh on it in a way that, uh, in essence, uh, forced in a new uh, system in a way that the, the COVAX system that's in place is, in essence, uh, organized around uh, intellectual property rights uh, in such a way that... Um, uh, ostensibly, they were to, supposed to supply 20% of the poorest country, 20% of the population of the poorest countries with vaccines. That didn't go anywhere because, in essence, the uh, the various pharmaceutical companies that that were part of the um, agreement basically abandoned it, uh, moved toward bilateral agreements with uh, richer countries, and in essence uh, failed. So this is why you know back to the number we began with: 5.5 billion vac vaccinations, not anywhere near the 11 billion we need. Um, and uh, mostly in, in the richer countries, we are we were we were always going to be in a race between us and the yeah. virus. We were always going to have to vaccinate as many people as possible before the before the virus uh, engaged in what's called vaccine escape, evolved out from underneath the vaccine. But that's not the race we're on. We instead chose a, a race between the virus evolving out from underneath us and. Um, the decision to supply booster shots to rich countries that can afford them. So the virus itself is having a field day. Yeah. It's, con it's confronted with people who are vaccinated, so it can evolve that, uh, that on that problem. And then you have much of the world that's still going to be increasingly infected, so it allows it to come with all sorts of variants, including those that are starting to uh, escape uh, the vaccines that we have. And so it's a it's an agreement that happened not between uh, poor countries and rich, but between the pharmaceutical uh, pharmaceutical companies and the and the virus itself, because they're playing off each other in a way that they both benefit. So my, my point is that, yeah, there's a lot of things to object to the pharmaceutical companies when it comes to this. And it doesn't mean that because you want people to be vaccinated, therefore you support the pharmaceutical companies. Much of the R&D that went into that work was supplied and paid for by uh, people's uh, governments around the world. So this is not, this is the typical problem of, you know, private companies uh, privatizing research that was uh, paid for by the, uh, not just the American people, but people uh, from around the world by taxes and such. So we can object to all those things and you know, still be in the business of saying, also saying, and here, here we can continue to take positions that we oppose the notion that we were always, uh, all, any of us who understood what was going on, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, opposed the notion that vaccines were, were gonna be enough. 
and the uh, because we knew the public health and they need to be uh, continued on into these other directions of the Tetris uh, interventions that we talked about. All those things were necessary. So we get a nice Swiss cheese sandwich, bite into it and go to the rave because now we're done with this. But instead, we have, in essence, a failure of governance, failure of leadership, and a, a, a decline in uh, imperial power. Uh, the U.S. is moving more into a, a kind of failed nation state, uh, state as it were. Uh, you know, we are on the far side of our uh, cycle of accumulation. Um, what that means is that throughout world history, and I won't go into the entirety of this, uh, but, you know, um, uh, capitalist empires go through the cycle of accumulation. On the front end, they turn money into capital and they build imperial infrastructure, including public health. And when they start to fall apart, whether it's an Italian city-state, whether it's the Spanish Spaniards, whether it's the Dutch or the Brits or now us, on the far end of it, we start turning capital back into money. And what that means is that our bourgeoisie start cashing out, meaning they no longer invest into things like public health and you know, the imperial pipeline or running the world system of capitalism. We now are now cashing out and the rich are scrambling to basically get what they can and leave the rest of us in the lurch. And what that does is that when there's no leadership, when the political class is in essence helping that exit out of the cycle of accumulation, um, not only do we have a failure, we're, we're leaderless, we have a leadership that is involved in basically smashing what's left of uh, the American community. Yeah, I mean, that is the bigger scandal to me. That and of course what you mentioned about this uh you know, really denying a huge portion of the world access to these vaccines just so a few companies can profit. Like, that's the real scandal here. Yeah. And you mentioned the variants. Like, that's how you have this recipe for new variants to emerge when you have, like, a portion who's vaccinated and a portion who's not. And it's just a complete disaster in the making. But, uh, you know, I know you have, uh, you know, I, I've taken up a lot of your time. I have a couple more questions, I promise. I very quickly wanted to touch on the issue of shifting blame. Um, because, you know, one of the ways that the... U.S. elites, at least, have tried to shift blame for this pandemic is to put it on China, especially with, you know, the lab leak theory, um, which, you know, anything's possible, of course. But you've actually, uh, you know, you've actually written about this, of, of the origins of COVID-19. I'm curious, are there known cases of pandemics caused by labs and something leaking from a lab? And from that, you know, what's your view of that 2020 lab leak theory? Yeah, uh, there have been. 1977, uh, uh, influenza leaked out of a uh, Soviet lab that went pandemic. It wasn't that deadly, but, you know, it does happen. And in fact, uh, you know, Laurie Garrett, another kind of mainstream uh, journalist and establishment scientists at Yale and Harvard have been warning about this for years. There's a uh, Princeton 2013 uh, Princeton study that mapped out all the new uh, BSL biosafety labs, three and four, those are labs that deal with the most dangerous pathogens that have been built since 9-11 and H5N1. Uh, they run into the thousands uh, around the world. So a rare event like a lab leak, uh, given that, that amount of opportunity, bends toward the inevitable. So, you know, as a, a, a larger theory of uh, danger, it is certainly a, a, a respectable position. Um, and of course, you know, uh, as I've written, 
a lot of the people, some of the personas involved, uh, not only at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but the Echo Health Alliance here in New York City, uh, were involved in kind of gain-of-function studies, first in the U.S., and then upon uh, the, the moratorium on the gain-of-function studies, meaning allowing a virus to evolve its solutions in the lab, you know, you don't want to do that because along with figuring out how to infect this plate of cells that you're looking at, the pathogens are also working how to escape the lab. So you don't want to do that. So in, uh, uh, you know, with uh, I don't usually say this, but the uh, Obama administration were quite wise in putting a moratorium on, on those things. And yet, um, you know, it, it was greatly suspected that um, Echo Health Alliance continued doing this kind of work with uh, Wuhan scientists, and they did. I mean, the, uh, the Intercept article recently uh, describing exactly this, and I'm not surprised by it. The question of, is that the source? Um, I'm more of a proponent of what's called the field hypothesis. I think that um, there have a lot more uh, coronaviruses circulating in central and south China in a way that uh, gives it uh, many more opportunities to be able to spill over into um, into you know local wildlife, local wild foods, uh, local laborers. Uh, you know, China is all in its own cycle of accumulation moving up. They went on the BRICS model, the, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa model of capitalist development. Decided to, you know, develop on their own. They pulled millions of people out of poverty. They also left millions behind. But they decided to use their own natural resources to do so. So there's a lot more interface between um, bats who are uh, hosts for coronavirus, as much in the way we described for Ebola earlier in the interview. So you have a lot more chances for these spillover events. The, uh, the evolutionary genomics of the virus uh, bends toward the more field hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the work indicates that uh, in all likelihood, you have uh, the Wuhan strain circulating in southern China for uh, years, in humans for, for years before wow. it emerged in Wuhan. So uh, in other words, we have competing hypotheses. <clears throat> we have data um, accumulating in favor of both. <clears throat> wow, this is this is thirsty work. Give me a second. <laughs> I have had you going uh, for like over an hour, so it's only know, fair I, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I, if only for my voice, we'll have to wrap up soon. But to say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, to say that there are competing hypotheses, there are data accumulating for both. We didn't figure, it took 15 years to figure out how SARS-1 emerged. It's only mm -hmm. been 20, 21 months since um, uh, SARS-2 emerged. It's like, chill out, you know, just like, you know, realize that we're still working this out. Could be one or the other. But the thing is, the proponents for both of them are so at each other's throat that they missed the point. That yeah. the, the focus is on this as a way of avoiding conversation about the economic drivers that led to the emergence of multiple uh, pat deadly pathogens around the world. So if you focus on the lab thing, you know, why are you building all these labs to clean up the mess of the economics you refuse to address? Mm -hmm. And then the field hypothesis also is focusing largely on, you know, local practices that led to the emergence of this instead of thinking of the relational geographies that we began our conversation with. Yeah. And I, I promise this is my final question. It's just, I think, a good one to end on. And we had you you had kind of almost <laughs> gotten into it earlier. But I guess it's, you know, how do how do we get out of this? And is yeah. You know, the capitalist reaction that was that third thing of like, is capitalism responding to this pandemic in a way that could get us out of this? Yeah, we're, we're um, if, you, if you're expecting our, our various lords and masters at this point to, to save the day, the, I don't do that. You have to, in essence, we all need to kind of disconnect that of the, uh, uh, the Borg of it is, of it, as it were, of, you know, how this is going down and, and how to, to get out of it. 
as I said, they're perfectly uh, willing and able. The you know the the bourgeoisie and the political class that serves them are perfectly able and willing to to let millions of people die. And you know if they're doing this for a virus that has a you know one percent case fatality rate, you know they're certainly going to do that for a virus that has twenty five percent case fatality rate. Certainly they're going to do that for climate change. So if this is not a flag of of what they're after, then you know uh, then it's very clear. You know all of us still you know uh, are still plugged in. You know. We're not capitalists, but we are a part of the capitalist systems. We need, we have bills to pay. So I, I understand the limitations that we're all under, but there has to be an extra uh, move in a direction. And you know, there are paths elsewhere, different ways of doing farming. There's what's called agroecology done uh, uh, in the global south, largely, but increasingly in the global north. Uh, move toward more farmer autonomy. Uh, the notion uh, that you know, reintegrating the ecology and economy in a way that allows us to. Uh, have all the clean water and clean air and and the kind of agrobiodiversity that would uh, stop the emergence of many of these pathogens uh, in the first place. So there's a lot of practical things that could be done, uh, not only within farms, but elsewhere. And there's a lot of ways in which we can heal the rural urban divide that here in the US, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are taking advantage of. Uh, so we need to be able to speak to our brothers on each uh, on that continuum there. If your city you know, speak to your rural brothers and sisters and, and vice versa. You have to, it, it, so in other words, healing that metabolic rift isn't just an ecological program, it's a political program. This goes for not only within countries, uh, but between the global north and global south. We have to basically decolonize the system, move out of that 500 year, uh, uh, you know, hallucination. Uh, we all depend on each other in this way. We all require each other that re uh, involves a kind of developmental convergence. So we have to start to be able to move in a direction we, we just don't have a minority of the, of the world using all the resources. It's not, it's not playing well with us in the end, really. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's not going to protect you. Uh, you know, climate change come in, all, you know, the fires, the weather, all these things. Um, you know, it was noted that uh, we're watching this in real time on people's, you know, cell phones of 20 second clips until one day you, you'll be recording that as well. So, yeah. you know, it's coming, it's here, it's already here, all these things. So we, uh, but you know, there are millions of people around the world who understand this. And, uh, you know, in the course of speaking to people uh, around the world, you, you know, you, you learn and, and take, uh, and we have to reach out to people like this and, and uh, elsewhere and start to build these uh, kind of alliances that see, um, that uh, move us away, um, you know, from globalization and uh, toward an internationalism that, uh, will uh, save the, the planet, save our species, and allow us to be able to go back to the, the raves and rugby that we like to do, so. You know. <laughs> That's the best way I've heard it put before. Rob Wallace, thank you so much for joining us to break all this down. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.